Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from John Collison of software payments company Stripe. This week, we talked to the head of another Silicon Valley company that's trying to turn recruiting on its head. So we administer a test. We get a score. If they do well, they'll go on the platform. Now companies know that they're good, irrespective of whether they went to a coding academy or they went to a CS program that they know. That was Mehul Patel, chief executive of Hired. He spoke to the FT's Hannah Kushler about what hiring trends suggest about the state of the tech industry and how some companies are shifting course in the wake of Donald Trump's executive action on immigration and the H-1B visa. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mayhor. Hired is this startup that's uh, grown up in San Francisco. Uh, you put up your resume and recruiters pitch their company and the potential salary you might get to you. And they kind of do the covering letter thing for the company rather than for the candidate. So I presume there's a lot of you know, reasons why my startup is saving the world and you have to join. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's great to be here. So thank, thanks for having us. So hiring is often a very good indicator of the state of an industry and of the startup ecosystem. You have a lot of startups on your platform. What can you tell about how healthy they are financially and what their growth prospects are from the way that they are hiring? So uh, we do see a lot of startups on the platform. We see a lot of venture-funded companies in general, um, as well as large companies. And so we can see a trend across client segments. You know, what we've seen is hiring continues to be robust. Companies are still hiring. We are seeing that the venture slowdown has affected some early-stage companies. They're more thoughtful about how they hire. Um, but um, you've also seen later-stage companies raise a lot more money, hire a lot more people. The big trend we've really seen is this continuation of this trend of folks looking at other markets outside of the Bay Area for their careers. So, you know, we're seeing markets like Austin and Seattle, uh, which may have, you know, average salaries that are lower than the Bay Area. So to give you an example, Austin's average salary is 110000 a year for an engineer, and that's 134000 in San Francisco. But once you actually factor in cost of living difference, that 110000 a year in Austin is close to 200000 a year in San Francisco terms. So I think um, we're finding the talent is realizing that there are vibrant ecosystems in other places. They can get paid more uh, in terms of what's left uh, in their pocket after cost of living, and they're exploring kind of other opportunities. So what kind of size companies are you seeing opening offices in in Austin or Seattle or Portland? Are these big companies or, or are some small startups just deciding to start out there? Yeah, we're seeing it across the range. So historically, it's been large companies opening up development centers. But in the last three or four years, we've really started seeing small companies choose to be founded in those markets. The cost of living is lower. There's great talent there. The talent wants to be there. There's now an ecosystem. There's venture capitalists that want to invest in those markets. And so we're seeing that become a home for companies to start up, not just scaling companies. Mm. When you talked about the venture slowdown, um, that's the fact that there have been fewer round, large rounds in terms of smaller companies, but the big your Ubers and your Airbnbs are raising huge amounts of money still. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of hesitation among investors to get into those companies. So are you basically seeing those guys dominate the hiring market? 
We're not. Uh, we're seeing it sort of spread across companies, though we are seeing sort of a shift towards kind of later stage companies just because they are hiring more for the trend you're, you're pointing out. We're still seeing a lot of interest in startups, though. It's just I think that the startups that raise money are going through kind of a higher bar on the investor side and getting funding. Candidates are more careful around if they join a startup, what are its prospects, when do they uh, need to raise money, when do they become profitable. Those questions are being asked, but they're still interested in startups. That's interesting. So before, were people just sort of saying, oh, I'll jump ship to this startup because, hey, if it doesn't work out, there's another five who'll want me next week. That's exactly right. And I think even you know, to put a nuance on that, Hannah, I think that people didn't assume startups wouldn't work out because you could just keep raising money and the, the money was hiding all sins. Yeah. Now it's harder to raise the money. But we still haven't seen that many startups go completely out of business. What about those startups? Are you seeing some which haven't raised money but are still in business just dramatically slow down hiring? We're seeing that in isolated instances for sure. You know, remember that two years ago in 15, it was the height of the venture market. So those companies raised a lot of money. Usually you raise about two years worth of money. So right. you think it's going to be worrying now? Yeah. So I think there's some companies now thinking about their capital strategy and they're running short of cash. They're looking, you've know, seen uh, stuff out there about how there's more and more debt deals being done. I think that reflects the fact that equity deals are harder to do. So I, I, think, I think it's still coming. And if you're an employee and you're wanting to be cautious and you're wanting to know what the IPO strategy is, given that we have started to see a few IPOs this year in the way we really didn't see very many at all last year, what kind of questions can you can you ask to assess that? It seems so put your finger in the wind to to test out the, what the market's thinking. For sure, I mean, I think I think you start with asking, you know, what is the plan to go public? Is there a plan? We give our candidates a talent advocate that kind of works with them and advises them. So they advise them on the questions to ask. And the questions are, you know, a company that can go public generally needs to have a hundred million in run rate revenue. So you can ask that question, when's that going to happen? So that means 100 million in revenue total that they've ever got through the draw? No, that's taking their last quarter of revenue and multiplying by four. And if that gets to it, so they're doing 25 million a quarter. So they look like they could be doing it. Exactly. So they'll get there, right? The second is uh, getting to profitability. (laughs) Um, There's lots of companies that aren't near profitability. Exactly. But do you have a path there? How does that happen? And then the third is just kind of growth rates. You know, uh, typically you say a company needs to have a 30% year-over-year growth rate. And so asking questions about, you know, I know it's early yet, but, you know, when do you see us having a $100 million run rate? When do you see profitability happening? What kind of growth rates do we have at that point? Are the right questions. Yeah. And one of the things that must be on recruiters' minds a lot, and I've certainly heard a lot of concerns about this in the last few months since um, the election of President Trump has been potential restrictions on highly skilled immigration, in particular the H-1B visa, which is used by lots of tech companies in order to bring over software engineers and developers from other countries. How much concern are you seeing about this? And and are people actually acting on that concern yet? A huge concern. So, you know, the way that the Bay Area and other tech ecosystems uh, in the U.S. have worked is there's been a shortage of of high-skilled talent, particularly engineers. There's been heavy reliance on the H-1B program. And so when you see that being curtailed, companies are really concerned. So you're seeing, you know, a lot of political action around it. It's, a, it's an existential issue for the industry. Is uh, political action lobbying? Yes. There's lobbying. There's, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, Ford US group. There's a number of groups putting pressure on to ease restrictions rather than raise restrictions. Because people had already wanted the cap to be lifted because at the moment it's only 85,000 and even some of those are reserved for people that have higher degrees from US universities. And, and which companies are going to be the worst affected by this? 
You know, I think I think it's it's a range of companies. You know, typically the very early stage companies didn't have the infrastructure in place to do visa stuff, so they might be somewhat immune. They tend to hire at the very early stages. I'm talking about companies with fewer than 20 employees. They tend to hire through their referral network, so it's less likely. It's the scaling companies. It's the companies that raise, you know, 20 to 100 million that now need to hire a bunch of people. They've tapped out their referral networks and they're finding great talent abroad and are hoping to be able to bring them on into the US. The other group that's really affected um, that we don't see on our platform as much are the big consulting companies, the Infosys type companies, which are traditionally relied on these H-1B visas mm. to staff up. Mm. And what about the contingency planning? I mean, are people looking to open offices in other countries? Yes. Uh, so we're hearing all of those kinds of plans put into action, uh, development centers in other areas, Canada, Dublin, uh, Europe, Eastern Europe particularly. Canada has been one that's mentioned a lot. They've made it very easy for you to bring in immigrants from elsewhere to Canada. Have you heard of specific companies opening there? Uh, not specific companies I can mention, but yes, the, the centers uh, we hear about are Vancouver and Toronto for those reasons. Waterloo is another one for two reasons, actually. One is a lot of homegrown talent that's excellent. And two, yes, as you said. Because there's um, the University of Waterloo, which exactly. is yeah. top of the field. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then very uh, permissive or more permissive immigration policy. I actually suspect that Canadian companies will take advantage of this, um, this trend. I think the government wants to encourage more immigration there. What about Mexico? We haven't, to be honest, seen a lot uh, in Mexico. But, you know, again, I, I think people will flock to where the talent is. Interesting. I mean, if you were a company trying to do less immigration, how would you do it here? Do you think people go down the route of actually training more people? Or will they go down the route of opening offices abroad? Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I think I think both. So the, the easiest route, if you need to build the product quickly, is to open an office abroad. They're, they're going abroad right now because there's a talent shortage here, yeah. right? So the short-term fix is go where the talent is. If you can't get them to the, the States, go to where they are. The long-term fix, which is, you know, frankly, should involve government at some level too, is retraining people who have been left behind as, as we've shifted from a manufacturing economy over to a digital economy. But that's going to take a time. It might be generational. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there have been obviously lots of kind of coding boot camps and, and you do see people coming through those those routes. But actually, you're not going to take those dissatisfied Trump voters who were, were factory workers and make them software engineers very quickly. It will take some time. I mean, you know, one of the things that we think uh, we're excited about with our, our business is we can facilitate those people that do get those skills finding jobs. So because we have a selective admissions process, we can select the coders that are actually really good, even if they went to a coding school and put them on our platform. So you, t you sort of make them do a test exactly. rather than just saying, I only want people who went to Stanford. Exactly. So we administer a test, we get a score. If they do well, they'll go on the platform. Now companies know that they're good, irrespective of whether they went to a coding academy or they went to a CS program that they know. And so that helps them get the jobs. But you, to your point, you've got to be driving people into those programs, giving them support to do that, to get the skills, to find the employment through platforms like ours. And we focused on engineering, but another big shortage area, I get the impression, is data science. Uh, are you sort of seeing the equivalent data science coding schools where people are taken and quickly immersed in that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, there's a Coursera course that a Stanford professor did 
for data science fundamentals that I think had hundreds of thousands of signups a year or two ago. There's a lot of interest in data science. We see that interest on our platform. Demand for data scientists at the beginning of this year went up 20% over the prior year. The supply of data scientists looking for new opportunities went up 50%. Wow. So we're seeing kind of big numbers uh, on a relative basis for data science and movement. And, and obviously data science is becoming increasingly key to scaling companies, whether you're thinking about artificial in intelligence or machine learning and algorithms. And so where do those potential data scientists come from? What kind of backgrounds have they had? Yeah, that's it's fascinating, actually. So data science as a discipline is, is relatively new, the terminology, but it's, it's, it's been in academia for, for decades, right? So if you're an academic, you're doing research and you're using data science, that used to be called statistics, to come up with conclusions. And so a lot of these people come out of education, actually, and they've been doing statistics, they've learned some coding around that and learned to use the tools, and now they become data scientists. One of our data scientists at uh, Hired actually came out of the um, astrology program at Berkeley. Oh, right, okay, yes. And what other sort of shortages do you see in terms of in-demand employees? Yeah, I mean, look, sort of at a meta level, this is literally the hardest environment to fill jobs. There are 6 million open jobs in the U.S. right now. It's the highest ever. So number one, there's just this big trend of just, you know, not enough talent to fill jobs. We see that really acutely in, in the place we play, which is knowledge workers and, and sort of higher knowledge workers, particularly technology sales and marketing people. You know, and the areas are what we'd expect, software engineers, um, data scientists, a lot of demand for PR, communications and growth marketing. And again, the demand is outstripping supply. Now, diversity has been a long-held problem in Silicon Valley, which is known as being very white and very male. It's particularly hit the headlines recently when Susan Fowler, the former engineer at Uber, complained that the company ignored sexual harassment claims and they're embarking on an investigation of that. I mean, where do you think we, we stand on diversity in Silicon Valley? Did Uber shake companies up? Are they now doing much more to try and hire more women and minorities? That's an excellent question. You know, look, I don't think Uber um, shook companies up and made them start doing stuff. I think this has been a mandate and imperative. I think there's been, frankly, disappointing progress on those fronts. You know, the thing that we track on our platform is we get to see interview request salaries for an individual, and then we get to see their final offer. So we see a bunch of interesting data. We put it out yearly in our Women at Work and State of Wage Inequality report, which we just put out. And that, again, showed, you know, two-thirds of the time women um, make less than a similarly qualified male for the same role the same company. Right, wow. And when you look at the the difference in actual salary, black women, African American women make 69 cents on the dollar compared to a white man. And so there's some very interesting trends where basically uh, men make more than women across all demographics. And you've also seen sort of LGBT identified individuals make less than their non-LGBT counterparts. What we do see that's a change in our platform is more interest in companies hiring diversity candidates and, and doing things like getting rid of unconscious bias. And so we, had, we launched a bias filter on the platform that companies asked for where we could sort of take away pictures, photographs, and names so you couldn't identify someone's gender or race or what ethnicity. Oh, that's interesting. How many people choose to use that option? So we have a, a significant number of clients that use it, but um, there's a small percentage, interestingly, that are mandating it. Um, oh, including right. our company, which is you have to have that as the default when you pick people. The other trend we see is that uh, minority and women candidates tend to get more interview requests than similarly qualified 
Caucasian male candidates because companies are really leaning into trying to solve the problem. Now, the thing I'd say is, you know, recruiting diverse talent is just step one. You know, the, the hard yards after that are actually retaining and growing that talent, having them be senior role models at your company so new talent comes. And a lot of that is the, the sort of the equity and inclusion efforts that companies are doing. I feel like that's lagged a little bit because the conversation in the press has been around diversity and hiring. But, you know, I think at the same time, there needs to be more done around making people feel included so they can grow there. And because the, all the data shows that you increase diversity by having diversity management. Yeah. And diversity management's grown through the ranks. Because actually, I mean, talking about the kind of history of computer science, there were a huge number of women in it originally in the 80s, and the the number dropped. And those people in the workforce actually also kind of dropped out of the workforce. And how much of that is kind of benefits policies, you know, recognizing that not everyone is a 23-year-old who wants to have all their meals at the office and play ping pong till the early hours? And how much of it is culture in terms of, you know, abuse and harassment and feeling out of place? Our observation is that a lot of it is the former. Clearly, the the latter happens. But a lot of it is just, you know, startup companies particularly are often led by young white males. And they hire other young white males. And you start creating a bit of a culture that's for young white males and doesn't fit everyone. And so, again, that, that's being addressed by a lot of these diversity initiatives in hiring. They're trying to take that bias out. So, you know, that sort of it's a work in progress. I think, I think the, the clarity and the statistics of diversity are a first step. Looking at improving hiring is a second step, but there's a long, long road here to fix this. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Key.